This is Affliction Fiction, a podcast regarding writers and artists who quite literally make their characters sick. I'm James Ewer. And I'm Jennifer Horlick. On this show, we analyze illnesses that exist in fictional works, such as TV, books, and film, and how they relate to the real world. And this week, we'll be taking a look at a variety of different zombie outbreaks at the request of dedicated listener Kesha, I mean uh, Anastasia Barco. We'll begin by examining unique variations of zombie infections, with a particular focus in this episode on zombie infections in TV. Perhaps the most prominent example of a zombie outbreak in television right now is a show that was named after me on my way to an 8 a.m. class, The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead hasn't given a very considerable or explicit explanation as to where its zombie virus comes from and how it actually works. The cause of the outbreak has never been revealed in the comics or the show, And the series creator Robert Kirkman has stated, I know what caused the virus, but it's dumb. I'll never tell anyone. Kirkman has been adamant that where the pathogen came from isn't actually important to the story. Early on in the TV series, a character named Dr. Edwin Jenner offers this explanation of the virus's effects. It invades the brain like meningitis. The adrenal glands hemorrhage. The brain goes into shutdown, then the major organs. It restarts the brain? No, just the brain stem. Basically, it gets them up and moving. When Dr. Jenner says that the only part of the brain that the pathogen revives is the brain stem, he means to say that only the parts most essential to survival begin to function again. This includes the medulla, which regulates breathing and heart function, the midbrain, which helps facilitate sight, hearing, wakefulness, and motor control, and the pons, which relays messages from the cerebellum, the part of the brain dealing with balance and coordination. Because these are the only structures which the virus preserves, the result is a human being that can do little other than sense and move. Now, Dr. Jenner compares the onset of The Walking Dead's virus to meningitis. But what is meningitis? And why is there no women-ingitis? That's a double standard. Hashtag meninist. Don't ever use that hashtag again. Hashtag meningitis. Let's not make that a thing. We all had to get the meningitis vaccination to live in NYU housing, if you live on campus. But not many people actually know about the disease we're preventing. It's actually a sickness with painful side effects and can be deadly in some cases. There are several different types of meningitis, including bacterial, viral, fungal, parasitic, amoebic, and non-infectious. The most common of these types is viral meningitis, which is an inflammation of the tissue that covers the brain and spinal cord. Non-polio enteroviruses are a usual cause of viral meningitis, but few people who become infected with these enteroviruses develop meningitis. Other viruses that can cause meningitis include mumps, herpes simplex viruses, varicella zoster virus, which is the chickenpox and the shingles virus, measles, influenza, arboviruses, and lymphocytic choreomeningitis virus. Usually children under 5 and people with weakened immune systems have a higher risk of contracting meningitis. Ah, yes, weakened immune systems. Not to be confused with weekend immune systems, which is when you don't get sick on Saturdays and Sundays. <laughs> the viruses which cause meningitis are spreadable through the air, but a person with viral meningitis is not likely to pass the actual meningitis virus. Instead, those with meningitis are more likely to spread the underlying virus causing the meningitis, such as mumps or measles. Symptoms of meningitis vary depending on age. In babies, symptoms include fever, irritability, poor eating, sleepiness, and lethargy. In adults, the symptoms are fever, headache, stiff neck, light sensitivity, sleepiness, nausea, vomiting, lack of appetite, and lethargy. 
People usually recover from viral meningitis with no treatment within 7 to 10 days. On the other hand, bacterial meningitis is way more severe than viral meningitis, though it's less common. Without treatment, bacterial meningitis can cause death in as little as a few hours. And while most people don't die from it and can recover, the infection may cause permanent disabilities like brain damage, hearing loss, and learning disabilities. Some of the bacteria that cause meningitis include streptococcus pneumoniae and listeria. The reason why NYU and most other schools require the meningitis vaccination for on-campus living is that deadly meningitis can develop from a simple case of strep throat, which spreads very easily, especially when people live in close quarters, such as Joe Weinstein Residence Hall, from which we are recording this episode. Luckily, the vaccination makes meningitis easily preventable. If one does contract bacterial meningitis, the CDC says it is important to start antibiotic treatment as soon as possible in order to avoid serious consequences. And I'm just going to go ahead and turn this into a PSA right now because why not? Future nurse right here. If you start to feel any symptoms of meningitis like fever, headache, neck stiffness, or nausea, please see a doctor as soon as possible. In regards to a cure for the Walking Dead's virus, Kirkman has stated, As far as actually trying to solve the thing, I've always thought that one of the best things about this show is that it's not about scientists and it's not about people that would take that on as a task. Because I feel like that's unrelatable. I think if there were a zombie apocalypse, I don't know that there's maybe five people in this room that would have that job. Now, you may have been listening to our show and wondering to yourself whether Jennifer and I are actually fans of all the fictional works that we discuss. The simple answer? No. Case in point? True Blood. They should have called it True Crud. But <laughs> This show depicted a virus known as Hepatitis V, which is an interesting case to examine because it affects not humans, but vampires. Closer to the end of True Blood's run, Hep V was genetically engineered by humans and administered to vampires in bottles of synthetic blood. Although Hep V was initially weaponized, once it infected a host, it was seen to travel very easily from vampire to vampire. A fatal new strain of one of your infamous foes. We're calling it Hepatitis V. My team is cautiously optimistic that our virus can be spread any number of ways by ingestion, through copulation, both vaginal and anal, and, of course, the old standby injection. No! 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 You're a first host. Congrats on being part of history. Initially, hepatitis V seems to cause the veins to become a very apparent dark blue color that is visible on the skin. It eventually reaches a point that affected vampires become weak and hungry to such an extent that their feeding habits become comparatively uncontrollable. Therefore, those affected by hep V essentially become the zombies of the vampire population. The most obvious comparison to make is to the other forms of hepatitis from which hep V takes its name. Hepatitis, in general, involves inflammation of the liver. There are five different variations of hepatitis, A, B, C, D, and E, each with different symptoms and treatments. Hepatitis A, caused by the hepatitis A virus, or HAV, is transmitted between people by consumption of contaminated food or water. Its symptoms include fatigue, low appetite, stomach pain, nausea, and jaundice, and these symptoms go away within two months of infection. Hep A is easily preventable. Just get the vaccination. Why would I ever want to prevent an A? Do you want jaundice? <laughs> hepatitis B is, unsurprisingly, caused by hepatitis B virus, or HBV. It's an STD. 
which means for those of you playing along at home, it's transmitted through semen, blood, and other bodily fluids of an infected person entering the body of an uninfected person. But hopefully I didn't actually just need to explain what an STD is. Hashtag safe sex. Jennifer, why did you write that into the script? Because I'm hilarious. Debatable. Hep B can either be an acute illness, meaning it's short-term, or a chronic infection, the latter of which leads to other serious issues like cirrhosis or liver cancer. This episode is sounding more and more like a PSA, but get the Hep B vaccination because it easily prevents it. I just got my Hep B booster because I'm a responsible future nurse. The hepatitis C virus, HCV, is a bloodborne virus, meaning it spreads through shared needles. Yikes. Like Hep B... Hep C can be a short-term or long-term, more serious illness. For this one, there is no vaccination, so just don't share needles. Please. And don't do drugs that involve needles. Hepatitis D virus, or HDV, which is uncommon in the United States, only occurs among people who already have Hep B. It's transmitted through percutaneous or mucosal contact with infectious blood and is acquired as a co-infection with HBV. It can also be a short-term or long-term infection, and there is no HDV vaccine. However, it is preventable through the Hep B vaccination. Lastly, hepatitis E virus is a self-limited disease that does not result in chronic infection. It is common in many parts of the world, though not in the United States. According to the CDC, large Hep E epidemics occur in Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Central America. It tends to infect people living in developing countries with inadequate water supply and environmental sanitation. And there is no official Hep E vaccination. Man, I'm not happy about that. I would hope not. Now, although Hep V resembles other forms of hepatitis in its name, its symptom of a hunger which cannot be fulfilled most closely resembles Prader-Willi syndrome. The U.S. National Library of Medicine describes Prader-Willi syndrome as a complex genetic condition that affects many parts of the body. It presents different symptoms at different stages in life. In infancy, it causes weak muscle tone, feeding difficulties, poor growth, and delayed development. In childhood, those affected have an insatiable appetite, leading to chronic overeating, which is medically known as hyperphagia, and obesity. The overeating and obesity caused by this syndrome can develop into type 2 diabetes. An even more obscure example of a zombie infection is the joy virus from the amazing world of Gumball. Incited by a wonder hug from Gumball's father, this virus causes otherwise miserable people to become uncontrollably happy. How dare you sing in my class? I'm sorry, but since this morning, I think there might be something strange with us, maybe. What is wrong with you? If you're like this is wrong, then gosh darn it, I don't want to feel right, baby. How can you be in such a good mood on a Monday morning in the middle of a surprise test? I don't understand it myself, miss. I just feel so happy. Apart from the inability to display any emotion besides pure elation, symptoms of the joy virus include cheery, colorful hallucinations and rainbow-tinted saliva. Although this is obviously a left-field variant of a zombie outbreak, the infected characters are clearly seen to display the same sluggish movement and posture of traditional zombies. It seems to be spread through physical contact, particularly through hugging. Eventually, it is discovered that the cure to this epidemic is being within earshot of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. So, James, is there a disease that actually makes people uncontrollably happy? Well, Jennifer, I don't know if I would call our friendship a disease. Aww. Aww. 
But other than that, the closest comparison we can make is Angelman syndrome, also known as happy puppet syndrome. This is a disorder of the nervous system, which is present at birth and becomes noticeable within the first year of life. While there isn't any way to tell whether it causes affected children to be internally happy, one of the symptoms of Angelman syndrome is an outwardly happy demeanor. According to the genetics home reference, this seemingly excitable disposition includes consistent laughing, smiling, and flapping their hands. But that could just be because they're watching me doing comedy. People flap their hands when they see your comedy? Oh, flapping. I thought you said clapping. People clap their hands when they see your comedy? Wow! (laughs) Happiness is not the only symptom of Angelman syndrome, however. Other issues include difficulty moving and balancing, impaired speech, recurrent seizures, small head size, delayed development, and intellectual disability. Now, there's never been an instance of properly rainbow-colored saliva, but saliva can be tinted by singular colors as an indication of some greater health issue. For instance, if your saliva is red or pink, it's probably mixed with some blood. This can be a sign of something as simple as an improper toothbrushing technique, but this can also indicate an issue with the digestive system or the respiratory tract. If saliva is more white than transparent, most often it's because of dry mouth. But it could also be an infection of the mouth or stomach, such as oral candidiasis, a fungal overgrowth more commonly known as an oral yeast infection. And if your saliva is yellow you're probably bad at brushing your teeth. The cure to the joy virus is Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. So can music cure diseases? Not explicitly. However, music therapy is an increasingly popular practice for improvement of health and quality of life. According to the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, when patients faced with a condition engage with music therapy, it can reduce anxiety and fear, minimize feelings of loneliness and isolation, and even lower the perception of pain. NYU Steinhardt even has its own program for music therapy on campus at the Nordoff Robbins Center. Here, Jennifer, let's try some music therapy right now. I'll sing a song, and you tell me whether you feel soothed. Okay. Look at this photograph. (laughs) I do not feel soothed. My fear and anxiety are an all-time high. All right, well, then it doesn't work. Scrap what we said. (laughs) And that's all we have to say for now. But what do you think? Do you have a question or contribution to today's discussion? If so, send us an email at afflictionfiction at wnyu.org. For now, I'm James Ewer. And I'm Jennifer Horlick. Thanks for listening. And get well soon. The Walking Dead Season 1, Episode 6, TS-19, was written by Adam Fierro and Frank Darabont and is property of Entertainment One. True Blood Season 6, Episode 6, Don't You Feel Me, was written by Daniel Kenneth and is property of Warner Brothers Domestic Television. The Amazing World of Gumball, Season 3, Episode 4, The Joy, was written by John Foster, Ben Bocale, Ben Cottam, Mike Graves, Kieran Hodgson, Tom Meltzer, Jess Ransom, Joe Parham, and Toby Wilson, and is property of Warner Brothers Domestic Television. Lover's Carvings by Bibio was written by Stephen Wilkinson and is property of Warp Records. 